Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. Well, my hope for us tonight is that we would receive the teaching of Jesus and that we would leave here living differently, obviously. But before we go into this tonight, I want us to recognize something. Jesus is the teacher. I say that because so often we think of Jesus as more of a distant savior. Someone who died for me 2,000 years ago. And really, if you talk to most people and say, well, who's Jesus? What are they going to say? He was a good guy. Oh, yeah, he died on a cross for me 2,000 years ago. We live in the Bible Belt, people. They're going to say that, but often he's not seen as a relevant teacher for us today. What does he know about the iPhone, coronavirus, my marital issues, the financial issues, kid problems, right? What does he know about it? And so Jesus is more than a teacher who wants you to learn about sine, cosine, and tangent that have no life application. Come on, how many of you ever left high school thinking, when am I ever going to use that? And sometimes I feel like we're going to sit with Jesus and he's going to teach us something where we're going to say, when are we ever going to use that? But that's not the teacher. He's someone who has the words of life. The Bible isn't about right or wrong. It's about life or death. And that's the words of Jesus. And this is why when we look at somebody who's not living the right way or living the way that God's word says to live, we should never wag our finger and say, well, that's the wrong way. Or our hearts, like the good teachers, should say, man, that's just not the life-giving way. That's living less than the life that I have for them, the plan that I have for them, because that's the words of Jesus, the teacher. He's not just trying to teach us something that is not relevant to our life. It is life itself. And the more we lean in, the more we receive the life that he promised. Come on, how many of you want to receive the life that Jesus has for you, right? That's why we're here. This is what we're doing. I love what 2 Timothy 3 says about the Bible itself. The Bible talks about itself. It's that important. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient equipped for every good work. It's God-breathed. It's more than just sign, cosine, and tangent. It's the words of life. And every time we approach it, we should approach it that way. Also, Jesus is a teacher who wants you and I to understand and remember. I mentioned this last week. It takes some digging. If you just read the Bible flat, it's hard to appreciate what it says. This is why I love about Jesus that what he says is deep enough that you have to dig but simple enough that anyone can understand. This is the wisdom of Joshua 1.8. When God told Joshua before he's about to lead the Israelites into the promised land, after 40 years of wandering, he says this, the book, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate. Everybody say meditate. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act on it in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, life-giving, and you shall be successful. You know, that word meditate, it translates to mutter. Any mutters in the house? You know what I'm talking about? You just kind of mutter to yourself a little bit. I know I do. I'll be doing something. I'm like, all right, you got to do this. Come on, let's set it up like that. All right, there we go. Very good. Mutter to yourself. And that is with the word of God. I'm going in my car, and rather than sinking into fear, what am I doing? I'm going to mutter the scripture that he promised. You are my strength and my refuge. I'm just going to mutter in my breath. When fear wants to rise up, I'm going to mutter it. I'm going to mutter it. That's part of digging. That's part of the digging. Again, if we read the scripture flat and we go out and we like, oh, that looks nice, and we walk away and we didn't dig, we're going to miss out on the treasure, on the life-giving part of what the scripture offers. So we are to meditate, to think on it, to mutter on it. And then lastly, this is how we show our love to the teacher, is by doing what he says. We show that we trust the teacher, that once the teacher teaches, we say, yes, that's right. I want to do what you say. When we own what he says, it becomes our own. And that's how we show we truly trust him and love him. That's why he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. This is why the teachings of Jesus are so important. 
you know, Wednesday nights, we're looking at the teachings of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Pastor Destiny taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And for those that don't know, write this down in your notes if you have never read this. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I want to challenge you this week, right off the bat, take a moment and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 5 is about the issues of life, money, divorce, anger, a hard heart, what it means to live right. Chapter 6 is about religion. It's about how to do religion right, how to pray and fast, not before men, but to do it in secret where your father rewards you in secret. In chapter 7, oh, it's all about money. Money, mammon. So Jesus talks about an array of things. So when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, this is partly what he means. That, that you in the 21st century are going to take time out of your week, open up to Matthew 5, and say, God, you show me what you teach about life. You're the teacher, and this is life-giving. I want to keep this in my heart and see life like this. And you know, when you do that, you show that you love Jesus, the teacher, who's more than just the distant Savior, who's the relevant teacher as the message of life today. You become an owner of that, and you show you love him when you do that. Right? Summer on the Mount is one of the greatest teachings, if not the greatest teaching of all time. It raises the bar of morality. Everyone should read Summer on the Mount. Even if you're not a believer, anybody could look at that and say, man, that's really good thoughts. Really good thoughts. But last week we looked at another teaching of Jesus, and tonight we're going to finish it off. We're looking at a teaching of Jesus called the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he's teaching them. And so what we've been doing, we started last week, is we're looking at this teaching that Jesus gave. Matthew 24, 3 says this, that when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now the disciples and Jesus are privately sitting on this mountain. I've been here, the Mount of, mountain of Olives. And when you sit on the Mountain of Olives, you get this panoramic view of Jerusalem and the temple. Yeah, I have this image up here, right? This is what you see when you sit on the Mount of Olives. And so you gotta understand for a Jew who's looking at this, this is everything. It's the temple. Now this is current, this is obviously current, right? There wasn't a golden dome <laughs> to another false god in the middle of Jerusalem when Jesus was here. There was just the temple to the west. But this is modern day. But when he saw it, the temple was everything to a Jew. It was the center place of the world. And so to talk about the end of the world is to talk about the end of Jerusalem. And so when they're talking about the end, they're talking about this. And so on this mountain, looking at this view, they're asking Jesus, when will it all end? What does that look like? When are you coming back to make it all right? When is it going to happen? And so Jesus answers their question. He first answers it, answers it to the near future. And he says, all of this, all of this is going to fall. It's going to be toppled. It's going to be leveled. It's, it's going to be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. And you know what Jesus said actually becomes true. In 70 AD, 40 years later after this conversation, guess what? Jerusalem is ransacked by Rome. The temple falls. It's, it's, in a story, it's actually the turn of Judaism. It's where we get the Ju Judaism that we see today after that moment. Everything shifts and changes, as Jesus said. But he doesn't just say in the, dis the near future. He says, guess what? In the distant future, here's what also, also is going to happen. I'm going to return. And when I return, everything, everything will change. And so after Jesus makes this comment about the temple coming down, he talks about the signs of the end. And why? Why are we talking about this tonight? Why are we looking at the Olivet Discourse? We could look at a lot of different teachings of Jesus. It's because of this. We, like the disciples, we want to make sense of our present, don't we? And we make sense of our present by having an insight on the end of all things. I mean, this is what makes it possible, like I mentioned last week, for us to go to the dentist. We can make, we can make peace with the fact that that guy's going to have a drill in your mouth and Novocaine all over it because you know how this is going to eventually end. When we know the end of things, it informs and gives, it gives a comfort to the present struggles and choices and dilemmas that we face on a daily basis, not just in our personal lives, but the world around us. And so the disciples are looking at the Roman Empire. They're looking at all the sufferings in their life, and they're saying, when will it all end? I need to know the end because I need to make sense of my present. And that's each of us. 
Because so often, many of us can be so undone by uncertainty. But that's not the life of faith that Jesus promises us. We are not to be people who are undone because we are uncertain of a future. We're actually one of the few people on planet Earth who have an assurance about what the end will look like. And it's not wrapped up in an event. It's not wrapped up in evil. It's actually wrapped up in good, in God. It's wrapped up in a man, Jesus Christ, his return. And so they ask about the coming of the age because when Jesus comes, he's coming back, not as savior, but as king. And what we find is that what Jesus tells about his return is not when he will come back, right? Like everyone's got the secret. It's like, I know Jesus is coming back in 2027. Get ready, folks. You, we're gonna collect all the money at the front of the church. <laughs> no, it's not about that. But Jesus says this. It's not about when I'm coming back. It's about what it will be like and how you should live in your present today. This is how you should live. And so Jesus launches off into these stories, these parables. Jesus, Jesus often, this is his main way of teaching is he told stories. He told a good story. And these stories causes us, again, to dig. They were simple, but they caused us to dig. Last week, we looked at the parable of the ready homeowner. And we saw that we have to think about the thief. We have to think about the thief. Think about Jesus coming back every day. It's how we make sense of our present. Is that, yes, he came. We, we stand between two bookends of history of what God's doing on earth. And all of earth moves at the beat of not what man does. Man rise and fall. Kingdoms come and go. But we, we move at the, what God, the eternal God, does on this temporal planet. And what he did 2,000 years ago and what he said he will do in the time to come. And we stand between both as people of faith, as people of grace. And both the past and the future inform where you're sitting here today. A promise. That's what overshadows your life. Think about that. You stand not alone, but between two events of, of God's activity. And it overshadows your world, your whole reality. And you get to partake in that and live in that. That's the life of faith. That's the life of grace that God has promised us. We are to be people of, of, of history. We're historians Constantly reminding our kids and telling the next generation, this is what God has done. Firstly, in Christ, but look what he's done in my own life. And we constantly tell our children, but this is what he promised he will do. And you know why you'll need to tell your children that? Because one day, if, if you haven't already, they will need to make sense of their present. Why is there suffering? Why is there brokenness? Why is there brokenness in you, dad? Why is there brokenness in you, mom? And we will tell them of the hope of the cross, but we will also tell them of the glory of the future. That when the king comes, all will be righted. All will be made right. Though there may be tears in the moment, joy comes in the morning. Why? Because of him who came, who came is returning. That's our hope. In theology, we call it the blessed hope. And Jesus, with his parables teaching us last week, think about the thief. Think about me coming back. It should inform your life, and you should always be ready for me and yearning for me. Always, always. You know, when I lived in Colorado for a minute, the, the Rocky, Colorado Springs, the Rocky Mountains, I mean, you just, ah, oh, they're breathtaking. They're breathtaking. And I would drive past them to the church where I was working at every day. And I remember, like, the first couple months, I was like, glory to God, you know. Who am I, God, you know. And after about six months, I'm like, going to rain today, you know, and I just drove to work. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching us here. We got to think about the thief. Why? Because we drift towards indifference. We drift towards familiarity, and that's what we do with Christ. We become so familiar with the cross that we just, we, we don't, we forget of what he promises he will do in the future. And we live as though it's not real. We live with such uncertainty as people who should be so certain of him and what he promises. And so we have to think about the thief and resist that drift of indifference. The second parable he told was the parable of the faithful house manager. And what he's teaching us there is that we show we are ready by being responsible. We allow the return of Jesus to be a motivation to be responsible with what he's entrusted us. And then lastly, last week we looked at this. We looked at the parable of the wise bridesmaids, the wise virgins. And what we learned there was that we take Jesus' return costly and not lightly. There is no celebration without consecration. 
And so I asked you guys the question of, am I living a consecrated life to him out of a love for him? And this is how the end informs the present. This is how we live in light of Jesus's return. We think about it every day. We take responsibility for the things around us, the people and the resources. And we live a consecrated life to him because we truly do believe that he's coming back and we want to be ready. But tonight we're going to look at the last two stories and parables that Jesus told in the Olivet Discourse. The parable of the bags of silver or gold or the parable of the talents. And then the parable of the sheep and goats. What you'll find, these stories get kind of more and more intense. And what you're going to find tonight is that these last two stories are more intense than the ones that we read last week. They're intense because of the message that they give and the circumstances that he communicates. And so I pray that, pray that as you guys lean in, you find that you can make sense of your present circumstances, whatever you're facing tonight. I know that as you get more knowledge of the end, of Jesus' return, you'll find yourself able to make more sense of your present struggles and sufferings and brokenness. You'll make sense of the things that happen in our world the more we have knowledge of the end. Matthew 25, verse 14, this is the parable of the bags of silver. It says this, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. This was common in this day. Wealthy landowners would often leave for personal or business matters and would entrust their property and their possessions to faithful servants. And so the landowner, we find in this case, was really, really wealthy, lending out eight talents total in its weight in silver. I mean, that's equivalent to around $2 million in today's estimate. You know, what we find and what Jesus Jesus is teaching us is that God is generous. God is extremely generous. He didn't have to, he could have just said to these people, I gave half a talent here, a quarter of a talent here, and, and you know, a fifth of a talent here. But no, he said, I gave 10 talents. I gave five talents. I gave this guy one talent. And the poor people who are hearing this, I mean, even the disciples, these fishermen who don't come from talents upon talents, are hearing this being like, 10 talents? Like the emperor don't even have 10 talents. What? He gave that man a million dollars? What? I ain't got a million. What? And I think it's just to show that God is generous. And when he lavishes, he lavishes generously. He fed the 5,000, and did they not have more left over? And they collected 12 basketfuls. The widow and the oil in the Old Testament with Elijah, it's the same thing. Did she not have more than enough and more to give? Absolutely. And we think about God, God not, with, not, not withholding his own son, giving that which is most precious. Because God is generous by nature. He lavishes because of who he is. But let's look at the spirit, the spirit of God, the very nature of the spirit of God that lives on the inside of every believer in this room. He gives what? Gifts, abilities to do his will, and he lavishes on us. Words of wisdom, faith, gifts of healing, prophecy, miracles, tongues, words of knowledge, discernment. These are free gifts that he lavishes on his people as he calls them to a mission that is so fulfilling in life. God is a generous God. Each one of us can take an honest evaluation right now. You know, most of us in this room are, you know, at least 25 and above. At least 18 and above. And each of us right now can say that God has been good to us. That God has been generous. I know that we live in a culture that always says you need more and you want more and get the raise and get the more and get the more money and have this. But he's been good to us, hasn't he? He's been generous. I've been, I was young, but now I've been old. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants out begging for bread. God is a generous God. Can we count the good things that God has given us in our lives, relationally, financially, abilities, health, 
And yeah, there's setbacks. I think that's part of what, what Jesus, I think, is recognizing in this parable. Part of living for the end is recognizing what God has given now. So taking an honest evaluation and assessment and recognize, God, you are generous. and You give me more than enough to live well and prepared for your return. You are generous. You don't just give me half a talent. God, you give me more than I. You give me, according to my abilities, you give me all that I need to live well for you and to manage it well. Yeah. That's how generous and that's how good God truly is. Come on. Anybody thankful for God? Anybody thankful for what God has done? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Put your hands together for God. Yeah, that's right. He's been good. Yeah, he has. Oh, yeah. Let's see what the servants did with the bags of silver. Right? Matthew 25, 16 through 23 says this. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money, and he earned five more. Come on. He must have invested in cryptocurrency. No, I'm totally joking. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work, and he earned two more. Wow, people are doubling down what God has given them. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. That just sounds not right. It's like, that's what you did with it? After a long time, their master returned from his trip, because they did. he did eventually return, and he called them to give an account of how they used the money. And so the servant to whom he entrusted five bags of silver, he came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five, I earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. You've been faithful in handling the small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And then the servant had received the two bags of silver, came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags, and I earned two more. And notice that the master gives him the same level of praise, even though he earned less than the other, but the same level of praise. The master said what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The first and second servants immediately make use of their master's resources, but what does the third do with only one? He digs a hole, and that's it. God rewards. God is a rewarder, by the way. He rewards what we do in secret and the, and the responsibilities that we hold. God rewards the first two, and the last two, we'll find out what he does. But what we find is this. We will give an account to what we've been given. And we know this. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, it says this. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The world and those who live in it. That means you and I. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Everything belongs to God and everything comes from him. Now here's the deal. If it belongs to him, then what we have is not our own, but it's what we are borrowing. You know, even my wife and I were constantly reminded that with our kids. When we want to lavish our affections on our children as our own, and they are our own. But when we, what we believe is that they belong to God ultimately. And that they are a gift from him. And we are stewards of this life that eventually lives to be, hopefully, responsible adults that contribute to society, but most importantly, honor God with their life. But they're not mine. They're his. And it's no different than the money that we have, the resources that we have, the people in our lives. They don't belong to us. And that right there, that offends our senses because we're hardworking people, aren't we? After all, it's the American dream. We, we believe that what we have is ours. But we find really quickly the frailty of life that when we take our last breath, do we take anything with us? Where does it all go back to? Because everything belongs to him. Now, I want you to understand something. Why this is so simple yet so freeing. When we begin to see things that what we have is his, then I believe that we are free to treat that thing as it was designed. I treat my wife, hear me, I treat my wife differently when I see her as belonging not to me, but to him as his daughter. I treat her differently. But you know, the opposite's true. I begin to treat the things in my life less than what they're meant for when I fail to see who they belong to, God. 
And so sometimes we want God to give us more, but we fall into the trap that we don't tap into the potential of what God has given us because we're not treating it as though it belongs to God. See, when things belong to you and I, we settle. We don't treat things to the level and the extent. We don't honor it the way that we should. But when we see the things belong to God Almighty, all of a sudden we elevate the value that we put on that thing. Because after all, if God owns it, what money could you put on it? We'll pay X amount of dollars to know that this watch that Mike Tyson wore, you, people will bid on it, millions, just because he wore it. It belonged to Mike, so what, is, what, what did the value do? And so when God is saying this, what really that last servant did is he failed to tap into the potential of what that talent really could be. And I find that we do, that we do the same thing in different areas of our life. When I, t- when I take whatever I have and I say it belongs to me, I end up treating that thing less than what it was designed. That's, that's our marriage. That's our kids. That's our finances. That's our health. Even my own body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What the food I choose to eat, everything, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. And all of a sudden, what, it frees me from having that thing because at the end, we don't have anything. That thing ends up having us. The Bible calls that an idol. But when we see it not belonging to us, its sticky fingers get off of us and we're able to evaluate and be free to love that thing and honor that thing the way God designed it. Maybe just maybe the secret of the talents that God gave was not the amount that he gave. The secret and the beauty of the talent was who it belonged to. That was the worth. That man, and we'll find in the third servant, that the reason why he treated that talent the way he did, why? He forgot who it really belonged to. And so you can look at your life right now and say, if there's an area in your life that you know is suffering, from lack of attention and energy, us not spending time with our children or our grandchildren, us not spending time in the things that God gave us, like like the scriptures, where people in the world don't even have a Bible. We don't treat that thing the way we do, the way we should, because we don't see it as belonging to him. We don't honor God, therefore. That's why God says we're going to give an account for what we have. Because you know what? It's not that you so much offended me and you took my possessions, you didn't treat them right. No, because I see the value of what this could be. Your wife, your husband, your children, your money, your health, everything in your life. I see what it could be. That's why I'm giving you account of that. Because that has value as well. And I want you to be a person that evaluates that. Because why? It belongs to me. Everything belongs to God. God cares about what we do with what we've been given because of the way it's treated. He's given according to their ability to make use of it as it was designed. Talents were not designed to what? Be, du- be buried in a hole. They were designed to be invested and worked with to double. The resources, the roles that you play and the, that others play in your life are all a part of the purpose. All play a purpose in your life. They all belong to God. They're all designed to purposely bring glory to God eventually in your life. And you know, this includes yourself. You belong to him. Not just your resources and relationships. You have potential and giftedness that has been in you. And it's the same truth. Oftentimes we look at our insecurities and we, we, we isolate ourselves from God. We say everything else is yours, God, but not me, not this, because I'm, I'm bad. And we call that shame. What did, the, what, did the, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden when they, when they were found out? What did they do? They covered themselves in shame. And we do the same thing with God. We say, God, you can have all of that. And we love God with all of our hearts. We give everything. We treat people right. We do everything. But the one thing that God is not allowed to touch is this wicked thing. Shame. And so we cover ourselves from him. And we say, God, everything belongs to you, but you don't want this thing. And we end up treating that thing not as it was designed to be treated, don't we? Why? Because we don't see that even this belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. Everything that lives in the earth, including yourself, belongs to him. I think part of what we can do to avoid this is avoid this trap of comparison. Galatians 6, 4 says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. You won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. 
think each of us can fall into that trap of comparison. And I think it's the same thing. We remind ourselves that, hey, I don't belong to you. I don't belong to myself. I belong to him. Because I want to be faithful with the work that he's given me, the talents he's given me. Because that's part of why the third servant buried his treasure, didn't he? Well, he's got 10 and he's got five and I got one. You know? And we do the same thing. It's like, well, they seem so happy in their marriage, and I'm not, and so, uh. And we don't see the grass as green can be green in our own. We do the same thing. Are you guys with me tonight? Everything belongs to God. And so do we feel the responsibility to take what God has given us and use it to its fullest potential for his kingdom? Do we, do we feel that tonight? Because maybe, maybe that area in your life you feel that with is because we don't, you don't see it as what? Belonging to him. Everything belongs to him. What are you hiding from God tonight? What are you hiding from the Holy Spirit tonight? What are you, why are you making yourself to be the judge when God is the judge? Let God be the judge of what is shameful and what is not. Just trust him with everything and watch what he does. And watch what you do. You'll begin to treat that thing as you should, as it was designed to. And you'll reach its full potential. Many of you want business ideas. You want greater this. You want greater that. And God's like, I've given you everything you need right now to make that happen. But because you don't see it as belonging to me, you're not tapping into the full potential of what it could be. Give it to me. Let it belong to me. All right. And then we read about the third servant. In Matthew 25, 24, it says, Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. You're lazy, basically. He's literally projecting onto God, by the way. He's unwilling to admit his own shame, his own guilt, so he's literally projecting it onto the master. You're lazy, when really he didn't do anything. I was afraid, so I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. He's lying. Look here, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I had harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit the money in the bank? At least I got some interest on it. The lazy servant blames God for his laziness, and the master helps him to see that if you really love the master, he could have at least went to the bank and got interest on it. If you really love me, if you really know who I am, and who this belonged to. And so the servant was lazy and a bad steward, and it stemmed from his attitude about God. And that's what we learn is that our attitude about God shows our readiness to give an account to God for the things that we have in our life. It's our attitude about God that really shows our readiness to give an account to him. You know, what we believe about God is the most important thing in our life. Now, we can even bring that what you believe about what you have in your life belongs to God. We can bring that a step further and say, it's really about this. It's about what you think about God at the end of it. Because you can think that God owns everything, but if you think God is mean, stingy, broken, cruel, then you still won't treat the thing that, <laughs> that you have in your life as it should. So it's not that it just everything belongs to God. It's what kind of God owns all of it. Your attitude about God is everything. It's the most important thing in your life. Hear me, about, hear me in this. You're the most important idea you hold in your head is what you think about God in your heart. Every blessing and every burden in your life is rooted to one thing, how you think and what you think about the Almighty. Everything is rooted in that. And none of us can get it right unless God reveals himself of what he is really like. And he's done that through his son, Jesus. When we think wrongly about God, again, as cruel and broke and harsh and mean, and that's why the third servant says that. I knew you were a harsh man. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know the master. Wrong ideas about God lead to wrong motives, which lead to wrong decisions in life. Wrong ideas about God, that's the core of everything. Psychology can't fix that. Psychology just gets you to look, look inward and look backwards. But just because you have knowledge of the thing doesn't mean that you can master it. 
You need something transcending, something outside of yourself that can, that can draw healing backwards, inwards, upwards, and all around. Everything goes back to its core about what you think about God Almighty, your opinion about him. You know, one of the most simple things that you can do to really test yourself is let someone ask you, who is God? And, and watch what comes out of your mouth. People I find who are sharp and quick to answer from their head know about God, but haven't known God experientially. I find that people who know about God, about other stories from people, are typically angry. I know about that God. My, my mom lost her job, and I know what kind of God he is. Right? Come on, you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I've never met someone who has such a terrible, terrible view of God, and they live a life that is so, so fulfilling. I've never met someone like that in my life. But I have met people who have such a knowledge about who God is in their hearts that they have lived a life that makes me so envious. Not with the things that they have, but their orientation, their attitude about everything. I want that. That's got to be life-giving. Because it all goes back to what you think about God. I think this is the wisdom of why Jesus gave what he gave in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Well, I think what Jesus is giving us here is one of the most fundamental focal scriptures in all of the Bible. And what he's saying is that when we seek to get the right beliefs about God and life, we internalize it in our lives. And then we'll find ourselves tapping into the potential of all that, all that God has given us. I'll begin to treat people the way they should be treated because I have the right idea about God and it all belongs to him. All of a sudden, I'm tapping into potential where I was overlooking it. Now, I see the very soldier who wants to oppress me as a potentially someone who could bless me. So not, that's why Jesus said, bless your enemies. Instead of someone says, carry your stuff one mile, carry it two. Because now you see things differently. Because you have a right idea about God. You see it all belongs to him anyway. All these things will be added. It's more like the light comes on, and now you see what you didn't see. Wrong ideas about God lead to wrong motives, which lead to wrong decisions. What you think about God is super, super important. But then we read on, and we see this, Matthew 25, the end of the story. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. And to those who will use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master not only takes away the talents, but he's, the servant is thrown into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what we find is this. A right relationship with God is shown by a right response to what God has given. Because the way you treat things shows what you think about God. And when you have a wrong attitude about God, you're not ready to give an account to God. I promise you that. But when you have a right idea about who God is and everything belongs to him, you'll find yourself ready to give an account. The parable of the bags of silver that Jesus tells us says this. If you want to be ready for the end, if you want to be ready, if you want to have your present informed by what's going to happen in the end, my return, be the kind of person that shows you're ready by what? Giving a right response to what God has given you. Because why? I know who God is. I know it all belongs to him. We show that we're truly Jesus followers by our faithfulness in the form of making the most of all that God has given and so we take setbacks and we see them as setups. We see closed doors and no, no, no's as God's protection. We see loss in this side of life and suffering as the means by which God forms in us his character and releases us from the things that we're obsessed with and we think is going to give us life that ends up hurting us. He gives us a, he addresses our character flaws and our inner vows that we've made and our brokenness and dysfunction by bringing us through suffering. God takes the bad and even works it for our good because that's what he promises in Romans 8, 28. That's the kind of life that we live. 
We show that we have a right response to what God gives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because we know who it is, and we know everything belongs to him eventually anyway. That's the mark of someone who's ready for the end. All that I have belongs to God, who is gracious, kind, loving, forgiving, generous, and faithful. That's the attitude of the faithful steward, the faithful one who had the talent. And then lastly, the last parable in the Olivet Discourse is about the sheep and the goat. Everybody say sheep. Everybody say goat. All right. Matthew 25, 31. By the way, before I do this, not to scare anyone, but this is, this is for me the scariest scripture in the whole Bible. This is so scary. Uh, but it's scary in a good way. There's bad fear and then there's good fear. There's fear that shows a sobering acceptance of reality. That's called reverence. And then there's a fear of the unknown and uncertainty as though I'm God. This is the good fear. This is accepting of a reality that is to come. And man, it surely informs the present when you think about it. Jesus tells this story, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will set upon his glorious throne. All the nations, as he sits on his throne, will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. What we find about this is that Jesus is king and judge. He is king and he is judge. Daniel 7 says this. It's a prophetic scripture that happened hundreds of years before Jesus came. He says this, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, And he came to the ancient one which was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingship, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that will not pass away. His kingship is one that will never be destroyed. The fact that Jesus is king should at some point come in direct conflict with our human nature to want to be king, to want the glory that we think we deserve, to want the stuff that we think we've earned. We treat ourselves as king. It's it's natural. But what we find in scripture is that Jesus is the one and only king who will set upon his throne and will be a dominion forever. Not just once, it's a total shift in lordship and kingship. And what that means is that if you're in any sort of position of authority, your authority should be, should be a mark of the authority to come. It should be like the one true king who will reign on earth. Jesus flexes and shows his kingship through miracles and signs and wonders in the church today. Silhouettes, whispers of what is to come. Cancer is healed. Eyes are opened. Hearts are transformed. Lives are turned around. Where there was weakness, there is now strength. Marks of the kingship of God. If you want to read about the kingship of Jesus, read Philippians 2. Read Philippians 2 if you want to read about the kingship of Jesus. Though he was God and equal with God, he did not consider equal, equality with God as something that is going to be used to his own advantage, but rather he took the form of a servant, becoming a human in human likeness and became a slave, a perfect one at that, an obedient one at that, and enduring the cross for us. That's the kingship of Christ. And when he comes on earth, he will do that very thing. He will judge He will have the final say in people's lives, and you and I should never take that lightly. No one one in this room wants the the weight of having to judge someone. I'm going to weigh in the balance your entire life decisions. Because how many of us know that every one of us in the room are both the, the villain in our story and the victim at the same time, aren't we not? We've been done wrong. Come on, there's trauma. There's brokenness in the room. 
unfair, things are not right, there's dysfunction that happened to us, and yet at the same time, our hands have blood on them. So Jesus is only the rightful king. Who wants the dilemma of having to judge and weigh into balance life and humanity? There's only one I would say is worthy. The one who would give himself completely to us and the one who did, the risen savior, the slain one, Jesus Christ. What we also find is this, Jesus said this, there will be a separation. You know, there's this theme about these end of the days is that right now everything's mixed. Everything's mixed. The, 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 the faithful servant and the bad servant are in the same house. The foolish virgins and the wise bridesmaids, they're together. They're not separated. You, you can even, which one's which? You don't know yet. The talents, you wouldn't know. You would think that guy who buried it, oh, he already sold everything. He got it going. You don't know. Wheat and chaff grow together. You plant that garden in your backyard, flowers grow, but so do weeds. No matter how much money you spend. Welcome to Louisiana. Sheep and goats go together. Faithful and unfaithful, wise and foolish, they go together. But when Jesus returns, there's going to be a separation that can only occur by his hand. And this is, this is the reality of what it is now. And this is why you and I, we hope for greener pastures later on in life. And we think it's going to give us all the wheat in the world and we're thinking no more chaff. But the last time I checked, the bigger my field, the more wheat, the more, ah, it chafes that chaff. And that's life. We want the marriage, but we don't want the friction that comes with living with another human being who's just broken as I am. We want the kids because the Instagram looks really good, but we don't want the yelling and the screaming and the fighting and how it brings up issues in our own life in the heart. Wheat grows with chaff, and that's the way life works right now. The wise die off early. The foolish live forever, it seems. The wrong people have all the power, and yet the the ones who should have power don't. Why? And that's the reality that we have to doubt. And there's only one who can do the separation. There's only one who can say no more chaff, only wheat. Do you realize that no one has that authority and that power on earth? No one has that power to do that. All of us are victims of wheat and chaff in the same areas of our life. Every one of us. That's the way life goes, but then we find that Jesus comes in, he does something that no one else can do. He rightly calls out what and who we are. In Revelations, it says that Jesus is the one with eyes of fire, pure, motivated by love, not an ulterior motive, who cannot be manipulated and coerced because when he sees you, he sees you for all that you are. And no matter what story you spin, no matter if you, if you project and cast blame and say you're the lazy one, and, and no matter what you do, he sees right through who we are and calls us exactly who we are. And when he does that, we are found what we are. And so for some of, us, some of us, that's the scariest thing we could ever imagine is having to face who we really are. Scariest thing. That's why I say I read this and it, Jesus is powerful and rightful. And it should strike a holy fear in you when you stand before the man with eyes of flame. Not as worthy or unworthy, he took care of the guilt. But as someone who can stand confidently before him, that's what this is about. And so sheep and goats. Sheep and goat, if you look from a distance, they look alike. Sheep and goats would actually, shepherds would do this, they would let the sheep and the goats mingle during the day. They would just put the whole herd together. But at night, they would have to be separated. And the reason why is that the sheep, because of the thick wool, liked cool air, so they would stay low in the valley. Rather, the sheep would go up into the mountains because, why? They like hot air. They would go up. And so when the time came, they would be separated. And they would be separated based upon their nature. Isn't that funny? Is that the shepherd didn't have to change... Okay, goats, go over here, sheep go over there. Naturally, as the sun set, the sheep would go one way and the goat would go another. Shepherd wouldn't have to fight for them to do that. They just, they knew. 
Sheep were more valuable and more teachable than goats. You're as stubborn as an old. Goats are stubborn. You can't teach them anything. They're not herd animals. Sheep are herd animals. They stay close to one another. They're completely, um, anybody been around sheep before? Yeah, yeah, they're like, they're like, they're really, how do I say this politely, dumb? <laughs> like, they're really like, uh, you know, they, they fall off the cliff, you fall off the cliff, you know what I mean? Goats are not, goats are way more suspicious and not trusting and individualistic by nature. And notice where Jesus separates them. He takes the sheep and he puts them on his right hand. It's a symbol of power and authority and value. And he separates the goat on the left hand, which is a, the left hand in the Middle East is a symbol of uh, worthlessness and vileness, sinister. That's where we get the word left. There's a separation that's going to happen. And right now, sheep and goat come together. But by their very nature, they're going to be revealed. And that's why the Bible talks not about religion, but by by a rebirth. The kingdom of God is about being reborn with a new nature. No man can come to the kingdom of God and approach the man with eyes of fire without having a nature that has been transformed and reborn. It's what we call saved today. It's what Jesus spoke of in John 3 in the garden at night with Nicodemus. Who can be saved? Well, the spirit comes and we can control it. But when he comes, he re- he, what does he do? You're reborn on the inside. And all of a sudden, your nature changes. You don't want what you used to want. You wanted hot air. Now you want cool air like the sheep. We're to be reborn, and when the separation comes, our nature is revealed. This is part of why James says, you show me your faith by your words, right? But I show you my faith by my works because it's in my nature. I don't, have to, I don't have to strive for it. It's who I am. And that's why the Christian life, if you are struggling, if it's like a, oh, trying to make it happen, my friend, his yoke is easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't have to try to be. You just simply are in him. And that's it. It's your nature. Let's read on. Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, listen to this, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. God has this in his mind. God has this moment in his mind since the moment he created us. And some of us are like, what is God thinking about? You ever thought about what is God thinking about? God's thinking about this moment. This moment where he he wants to give the inheritance and the blessing that he has stored up since creation to the people that he has rebirthed and reborn in his image, in the image of his son. It's what he's got. It's what he's wanting. I mean, think about that. The God you prayed to, the God that you're asking for, the God that you're asking to come in your present and do something big. It's the same God who says, yes, but man, you think that's big, but there is going to be a day where you will inherit all that I have for you. He goes on to say this, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty, give you something to drink or a stranger and showed you hospitality or naked and gave you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will say, I will tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you were doing it to me. The kingdom of God is our inheritance for those that are in Christ. The kingdom of God is our inheritance for those that are in Christ. The authority and the rule and the promise and the culture and the way, it is our inheritance, our right in him that we can invoke. This is why James says, who is a Jew, this is why healing is an issue of inheritance. Because it's a part of the kingdom of God and it's your inheritance. This is why James said, if you're sick, have the elders do what to you? Lay hands. Because in in Judaism, they believe that when you lay on on, of hands is how you bless the next lineage. It's how you give an inheritance away. Lay your hands on me and bless me. 
This is why Jacob sneaked to Isaac to what? To get that blessing. This is the wisdom of why we have an inheritance in Christ. And it's our inheritance that's given to us in his kingdom. Through Christ. Through Christ. What we also see is this. That the mark of a sheep is compassionate love for those in need. The mark of a sheep. The nature. Your nature. The nature that you should be looking for in your life by the Spirit of God rebirthing you is a compassionate love for those in need. And you know, I love NCC because I see that nature all around me. I, get to, I, have, I have the honor of working with the servant leaders of NCC, and I see this nature. No one ever steps up and serves consistently like many of you do without having the nature of a sheep. It's the nature of who God is. I love this about the sheep. The sheep are not taken surprised by their inheritance. They're not surprised by that or why they're welcomed to heaven. They're actually surprised by the reason why they're welcomed. Like, listen, they're like, wait, I'm getting in because of my compassionate love for those in need? That's just who I am. Are you guys getting that? That's just who I am. That's my nature. That's who I am in him, Christ. That's who I am. I wasn't like that, but now I am. That's why I'm getting in? <laughs> wow, that was easy. And that's why Jesus says, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you are. It's your inheritance. Write this down. This is really good. Good works that come from people grateful for God's grace, that's the heart of true religion. Good works that come from people grateful for God's grace, that's the heart of true religion. People, you should be surprised when someone points out your compassionate love for people because it's who you are. It's something we strive for. So our prayer is not, God, help me to love people better. That's a wrong prayer. God can't make you do anything. But what he can do is if you give over your heart, he can, make, he can change who you are, though. He can do that. So our better prayer would be, God, make me the kind of person who naturally would want this in you. And God can do that. And he will do that. What we also learn is this. Jesus takes personally how we treat each other. Jesus takes personally how we treat each other. How you talk to that kid, how you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your mom and dad, how you talk and treat other people. Jesus takes that personally, right? When you did it to the least of these, you did it unto. Have you ever loved something so much that you take it personal the way they treat someone else? You know the first people I think about? My kids, of course. If you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let somebody talk to, talk to my kids some way. It's like what? It's like you're talking to me that way. My wife, same thing. That's why no one's allowed to like talk bad about my wife in front of me. It's so funny. Why? Because I take it personal. When you did it unto her, you did it unto me. That shows that you really possess something. It shows that you really care for something. And that's how Jesus feels about his beloveds. That's how the Lord, the king and the judge, the man with eyes of fire feels about you tonight. He sees you as his own. And so sometimes we feel like when we suffer injustice from enemies, we think that we're the only one. But it's like, when that guy cut you off in traffic, Jesus cares about that. When that, when that boss is overlooking all your effort and how you're honoring and you're still being overlooked, Jesus cares about that. He says, man, you're doing that to me. That's mine. To affront them is to affront me. To bless them is to bless me. You guys get in that? But then we read about the goats, and for the sake of time, Matthew 25, 41, it says, Then the king will turn to those on the left, the goats, and say, And away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his demons. I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. You know, you guys in the store, I was sick in prison, you didn't visit me. Verse 44, Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and, and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. 
and they will go into the eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. What we find about this is that hell was made for the devil and his angels. God did not create hell with us in mind, but the devil and his angels. And so we show by our nature, by our nature, if we have the nature of the devil. When we desire to go our own way and not go God's way. When we set ourselves up as king and not live as though there is a king coming. Listen, and that's offensive, I know. But Jesus looked at, looked at many and said, I know your father, the father of lies, and you're just like him. He looked at the religious and said, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Jesus said many things that rattled us. Hell is not made for us. It's made for the devil and his angels. What we also find is this. The mark of a goat, the nature of a goat, is to ignore those in need. Suspicious, fearful, insecure. Pride. I don't have time. Everything belongs to me anyway. They're just not strong enough. You know, I, I think it's so interesting that the goat was not surprised by being sent to the hot place. The goat was not surprised by that. Because why, by nature, where do goats like to go? The hot place. They want it. But they're surprised by the reason why they're there. That's what's so interesting. And you know what I find is this, and it's so important for us to understand this, that there are sins of omission and that there are sins of commission. We commit sins when we fail to do something, right? Like, I, I did something bad against God, against myself, against others. And we get that. And th that's the part that we, I think we all know about. Sins of commission. I committed something bad. All of us have done that. But notice the parable that Jesus tells are not about sins of commission. They're about sins of omission. The danger of failing to do something. It's not what you did, it's what you failed to do. That's a sin of omission. And I think that that's what he's trying to tell us, that typically we think about avoiding the sins of commission, and we don't think about the failure of omission. But hear me on this. There's a danger in thinking that we have it right by avoiding the bad and not seeking the godly. Jesus says, hey, pay attention to this. It's not about your ability to avoid the bad. I'm glad you live a good life and you pay your taxes, and you don't shoot the finger when someone cuts you off, and you don't smoke cigarettes because that's of the devil, and you don't have a tattoo or something. I'm glad that you avoided the sins of commission. But hear me, Jesus said this, you can still miss it because it's not about just avoiding the bad things, just to call yourself good because there's an altogether another quality that's in this earth. There's the bad, there's the good, but then there's the godly. There are those by nature, not by religious works, who by nature seek out compassionate, out of compassion, the needs of those around them. That's otherworldly, that's different, that's godly. So when you approach God, it's not about God, but I didn't smoke cigarettes and God, I didn't do this. And he said, yeah, yeah, but where were you when I was naked and I needed clothes? Because in your definition of good, it was simply avoiding the bad, but mine is so much more higher and more richer and more true and life-giving. It's more, and that's the danger of thinking, that we can get it right by avoiding the bad and not seeking the godly. That's what Matthew 5 and 6 are all about. So that we don't miss the mark. We, we don't miss this thinking that, God, I had it right because what? I didn't murder somebody? And God says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say, if you're even angry with someone in your heart, huh? you call someone Raka, a fool, your danger of the, the, the hellfire. I mean, that's what he's saying. God, I didn't cheat on my wife. I just was a little porn. I just had a little thought. I looked a little too long. And Jesus says, well, like, well, even if you've committed that, in, if you've even looked at the woman with lust, you committed adultery in your heart. If, if your eye is offending you, cut it out. Because it's not just about avoiding the bad. All of us do that. We have this like standard in our mind of like, I've reached good person level. God said, ah, you've missed it. I'm the standard of good because everything belongs to me. And you look to me as your measurement in relationship with me. That's why it's not a religion, it's a relationship. 
because this is not about following rules, it's about following a person who accepts you, who loves you, who generously gives you everything you need to live a life that he's called you to live, the life-giving life. Ultimately, what we take away from this is this. Our lives in the temporary affect eternity. This is the most, if you can get anything out of tonight that said, think about this, please write this down. Our lives in the temporary affect eternity. It's a little thing to offer somebody a cup of water. It's a little thing to write a letter to someone incarcerated. It's a little thing to meet someone in need. It takes five minutes and five bucks and it's done and we think nothing of it. But what Jesus says is actually the way you live life in the temporary, in the here and now, it will affect eternity. I have not forgotten it. The judge and king has not forgotten it. And that's really what this whole all of it discourse is about. Jesus says, you want to know the end because your life right now stinks? Well, here it is. Living for the end means living in the present as though the end is already here. That's what it's all about. I constantly have in mind that I'm living for the account that I'm going to give. And it's not out of dread. It's out of joy. It's not out of works. It's out of my nature. It's not out of rules. It's out of a relationship. It's out of who he is. There's a few things you can do tonight as we wrap up. We show that we will have a right relationship with God by showing a right response to what he's given. What words come to mind when you think about God? What do you believe about God? Are you seeking first a right understanding about God in your life? He said, seek first a right understanding about me. Everything else is going to work out. It's going to come in alignment. You're going to have understanding. So maybe tonight you can write down where you're struggling to be faithful. That's a good sign that there's something about God that you don't know and you need to grow in. Acknowledge that it belongs to God. Study God's word about that area. Memorize scripture. Identify a false idea that you have about God. These are all things you can do. And then lastly, we live for eternity in the temporary. Are you just trying to avoid the bad or do you pursue the godly? Are you more focused on your good works, on the works of God in your life and in others? What does living for eternity look like for you personally? This week, I'm living for eternity. So that means how I talk to my wife, my kids, my job, my, my husband, my, my, my mom, my dad who hurt me, I'm, all the people I interact in my life, this is gonna impact eternity. I wanna think about that. Life all of a sudden becomes a lot more bright and colorful when it's in light of eternity. And so maybe what you can do for this is identify and focus on the good works of God in your life. Something you could do is this. You can read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 this week. For those that say, man, I want to grow in just knowing what God is doing and who he is. This is such a great scripture to memorize, commit to memory. Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 3 through 14, write that down in what God has done for you. And then simply this week, look for a need in your sphere and meet it. Because why? What you do in the temporary affects, affects eternity. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.